Welcome back on the show. Um, today we have another special guest, Alan Gannett. Um, just before the interview starts, maybe a couple of words. Alan is dropping his new book, The Creative Curve, um, which is already out also in Germany. Um, and um, we just did a little interview about his company, about his start um, in the whole entrepreneurship scene and also, of course, about the book and about how creative problems can be um, or how problems can be solved through uh, creativity. And a very interesting guy, Forbes 30 under 30, so lots of stuff to talk about and um, very happy to have him on board. And uh, looking forward, let me know if you like it. In the trenches every day cause I stay on my grind. If they hate they let them make cause they won't stop my shine. See me running to that money, I just want what's mine. No, I don't waste no time. No, I don't waste no time. Whoa, whoa. Welcome back in Feed Your Brain podcast. Um, we have another special guest on the show. Alan Gannett is on the show. Um, for the people who don't know him, Alan is the CEO of Track Maven, a marketing analytics platform, um, which probably should lead to more creativity. He will explain, I think, in more detail. But um, different clients such as Microsoft, the MBA, uh, Marriott, but also the German company Allianz, uh, which, um, which is quite funny and interesting. I think we should deep dive on that topic. Also... Alan was named uh, 30 under 30 by Forbes and Inc. Um, brings the world just to a better place by being a global shaper in the <laughs> form and just um, doing different stuff. And I think it's super hard to des to describe in a couple of sentences. And um, he's about to publish his new book as well, The Creative Curve, uh, How to develop, develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. And I got in touch with him a couple of months ago since I thought his, his content is super interesting, especially for the German community that I have and for the European com uh, community. And I think, um, Ellen, it's, it's just great to have you here and to talk about all the stuff that you're doing. Welcome to the show. Yeah, man. I'm excited about it. And the book comes out in Europe June 14th. And so only two days after America. So let's do it. Yeah, definitely. We can uh, probably start with a, with a German uh, community. And I think, um, lots of German people think about creativity and how to like be more innovative. Um, since we also take America as a role model and an example for innovation. Um, so it, I think that the topic fits quite well into the market. <laughs> Good, great. Yeah, um, you know, if if America, if we're known these days as innovative and friendly, we'll take it. <laughs> at least something, I guess. <laughs> at least some of us, yeah. <laughs> so where are you at right now? Are you in, in your office in, in the States or? So this is my office. Um, we're based in Washington, D.C. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, lots of stuff going on these days. And, and yeah, so it's a 60-person company. We started because I used to be a marketer and I was very frustrated that, you know, as a marketer, I was tasked with being more and more data driven, but most marketers I knew, they don't like data. They don't know how to use data. They like gone to marketing because they want to like create stories and like create amazing brands. And so, um, and so, yeah, so that was, um, for me, this moment of clarity of like, wow, like there's a big opportunity to be the sort of like outsourced left brain for marketers. And, um, and then the book sort of spawned out of that idea, which was that, you know, if you could apply system and rationality and data, To marketing and creativity more broadly, there's a lot of potential you can unlock there. Mm -hmm. But that's interesting because lots of um, lots of people think that creativity is somehow a talent and it's not related to data at all. But now the the time is coming that people think, okay, data can be used for marketing, right? There's just the connection coming up in the last couple of years, I think. I guess. Yeah, exactly. So what you're seeing is that you know in our Western culture we have this notion that creativity is this like mystical organic thing that some people have and most people don't. But the reality is there's actually lots of science on creativity and how creativity works and even why it works. 
And the thing that scientists have found is that actually we all have the same creative potential. There's not, you know, if you have an IQ of 160 or 120, it doesn't change your creative potential. The mm -hmm. difference is how you've unlocked it throughout your life. And so it turns out that creativity is actually a neutral, nurturable, learnable skill. And most people don't appreciate that. That's interesting. I mean, um, I think we should definitely deep dive a little more on that, especially because your book is also about the topic, which which makes it super interesting to have an audio form, but also um, maybe go deep dive in, in, into your book after after the podcast. But um, maybe to just go a little back, um, since you have a German relationship somehow with your customer Allianz, uh, which, <laughs> which, is, which is obvious, how does it feel just to be how like i think your your market especially is at the beginning still in in the united states but how how's your approach on on the european market at for at the moment for your book but also for your businesses how is how's it working yeah so for the for the business it's pretty it's pretty much like as it comes in like we don't sort of actively seek out um too many european customers just because we don't have an office there so you know we have to serve them at sort of odd hours so we love them um, but, you know, not yet at a place where we're sort of actively, you know, building out a whole sort of European go-to-market strategy like some other companies in our space have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's that. And then in terms of the book, um, you know, I was lucky to sign with a really big publisher who has a um, global distribution. So it's Penguin. And so they are rolling it out in English um, mm -hmm. throughout Europe on June 14th. And it's not currently coming out in German translation, but hopefully stay tuned. We'll see. Maybe your podcast will get it there. I hope so. I hope so. We we got to make the first step somehow, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, but maybe just also to to go a little backwards. I think the the history of your of your of your life and the business trips that you have done throughout your life are super interesting for my listeners. Maybe you can maybe you can just quickly explain what you've done before. You said you were you were a marketer, of course, but um, how how was the transition from your old business to the new business? What have you done before? Maybe you can give a little insight to the family. <laughs> Yeah, to the family. I like it. Um, yeah. So basically, um, my background was so before my first first sort of entrepreneurial endeavor was in high school, I started a Facebook performance marketing company. This was back before starting out high school and college. Oh, my God. Uh, sort of Facebook <laughs> performance marketing company. This is back when you could do like anything on Facebook, which I guess is now coming home to roost. And I enjoyed it. But I also didn't because at the end of the day, you're spending all of your time trying to convince people to like click buttons. And so um, we sold that for a very small amount of money around the time I graduated. And then I took a role as CMO of a venture-backed startup through someone I had met while I was doing that, that college startup and immediately saw that this, there's this problem in marketing where um, you know, people had this tension where they were asked to be data-driven, they were asked to be um, you know, data-minded, but they didn't actually have those skills. And so mm -hmm. I'm happy to go further back if you want. I'm, uh, I'm actually part German. My grandmother, uh, my grandmother immigrated from Germany through Ellis Island, um, and yeah. Where, where and so, did she come from? Do you know? Uh, I have no idea. I just remember the. I mean, she wasn't. By the time I knew her, she just wasn't that German anymore. She was <laughs> came over when she was five. I mean, okay. the most German thing she would do is she would make chocolate cake. That's good. Did it, uh, did it <laughs> German at least, or? <laughs> I don't know. I've never been to Germany. I want to go. Yeah, let's make it happen. Maybe there's a conference yeah, exactly. uh, conference host that uh, think you're interesting. Maybe let's see. Yeah, there you go. Try some <laughs> real German chocolate cake. <laughs> you're invited, of course. <laughs> nice. No, cool. I think um, that's super interesting. Um, especially if you think if you see the transition now, especially when you look at your graduate time, which isn't that long ago. I think you're 27 right now, I suppose. Um, you got it. 
So I think it's it's not too long ago. But um, how did how did the transition happen? I think a lot of people are in college or a little afterwards in in my podcast. So they also think about how to start a business in in in, uh, in college, how to start, how to really develop it. How how was your approach back then? Besides university, starting a company and then selling it and then starting a new one and going on. So I think the key, a couple of key things I did. So starting a company in college, especially your first company, very hard to raise money. Um, so what we did is we just basically spent half of our month working on our product and half of our month consulting. So we did web consulting for other people and we used that money to fund the entire startup. Okay. And so I think that's a pretty effective strategy. We also just paid ourselves very, very small amounts because mm -hmm. we were in college. We just didn't need that much money relative to how much you might need as an adult. So I actually think college is a great time to start your first startup. Most people's first startups don't do that well. Because there's so many like just dumb mistakes you make with your first startup that you're not going to make a second time. And so mm -hmm. college is a great time to like get that out of your system. Um, so, you know, I think the mistake sometimes people in college make is they come up with an idea that makes sense to them. Then like they're going to do a note taking startup or something, something very college related. And they sort mm -hmm. of overestimate how big or small that market may be because right. you know, they're in college where all these people are taking notes. But in real world, that's not a real big problem. So I think you have to be very mindful of that when you start a company in college is your sort of perception of the problem set out there is pretty limited. Mm -hmm. So you should start very niche or what's your recommendation there? So the big, the big thing I would say is generally when you're an entrepreneur, you want to focus on finding a problem, not actually finding a solution. So the thing you see is that you know, multi, you know, serial entrepreneurs tend to focus on problem finding, not solution mm. finding. So they identify a problem and then they spend their energy on how do I go about solving this problem? They're not actually saying, okay, here's a specific solution. I think what you find with a lot of first time entrepreneurs is that they come up with some cool idea. Then they're like, well, I need to try and find product market fit. Mm. But if you start with a problem, product market fit is very, very easy to get. And right. so that I think is a big distinction for people. And so If you aren't exposed to problems that are sort of worth solving, mm -hmm. I think the best thing you can do is to put yourself in a role where you see lots of different problems, whether it's consulting or working at an agency or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so while I do think it's good to start your first startup in college, you do have to be very mindful of the fact that you probably have a relatively narrow um, set of information with which to pick from. Right, right. Super interesting. I mean, what I always tell a lot of people is that There's a certain time, which could be in high school or in, in, in university, where you just start a company and you just learning, learn by doing. And by learning by doing, there are different opportunities that come up with it. Like, for example, with you starting then TrackMaven, which is the marketing analytics platform, which probably wouldn't have happened if you didn't do the stuff before, right? A hundred percent. I mean, that's what got me into this marketing track, digital marketing, mm. social media marketing. I was doing it early before lots of other people were doing it. And so I had a sort of unique advantage. And so that's mm. one of the benefits of just starting and not overthinking it is that you have some built-in advantages there. Mm -hmm. And what do you do now at, at, at TrackMaven, maybe to, to give people an insight? I mean, big data is big, marketing is big, um, analytics is big. So there's a lot of stuff buzzwords. coming together. Yeah, um, yeah. Buzzwords, so a lot of buzzwords. Basically, yeah. what the company is, is two main things. So one is that we have our own big data platform. Mm-hmm that um, people use to pull in all their marketing data, run reports on it, analytics, insights on it. And then separately, um, we also have an expert and consulting team that it can actually, if you don't have analysts in-house, we can actually take those analytics for you and actually turn them into insights. So our people can sort of okay. act like an outsourced you know, consumer insights or analyst team. Mm -hmm. So it's not a classical consultancy where you just do consultancy, but you also do the, the actual execution for the companies. 
Yeah, primarily we focus on doing the actual software and then right. the, sort of the services and the consulting are on top of that. That's a super interesting approach because a lot of German companies also focus more on like the software building, but they sometimes forget the, the, the thing that happens afterwards because lots of companies, especially in the, in the market where technology is still not as far as in, in the American market, I think German companies have the problem that they think of software as something like something external coming to them, but they don't know how to use it <laughs> and how to use it properly. Um, so I think it's super interesting to have the both components to have the software, but also have the consultancy part. Do you think that's a relevant model that people should think about a little more? Yeah, the, the, the term for it is SaaS plus. It's basically the right. idea of sort of you have software as a service, then on top of it, you have some more human help. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just a really valuable concept for a lot of people is that your goal when you're running a business is to solve problems for the customer. It doesn't really matter how you solve it, right? So if you solve mm -hmm. it through high margin services, Great, right? Like right. that works for everyone. Your goal is to provide value commensurate or greater than the price they're paying you. And so if you can do that, um, you know, more power to you. Right. So how's, how's your business set up? Do you have like half, half of the people, half of the employees working in, um, in the, the software department and half of them in the consultancy? Or how do you? No, you it's, it's, it? it's, so it's about, um, the, the company's about 50 people. And, mm -hmm. um, basically of those 50, probably about 20 are in, sort of sales um, type roles, um, about 10 in consulting, um, maybe 10 or so in account management. So it's, it's more than 50, it's maybe 55 or 60 employees now. And then uh, maybe 12 in soft and product across design engineering, and then a handful in marketing. Interesting, okay. So maybe just to give people a little inside of how you use a platform so you which kind of data do you do you analyze is it different platforms facebook instagram or how do you approach the the problem so it's primarily focused on owned digital channels so yeah so we'll pull in data from facebook twitter instagram youtube all of those we also pull in data from web analytics mm -hmm. um and then also rss feeds and then also um we'll pull in earned media mentions from around the web and What's kind of neat about what we do is we pull in all of your data, but then for your competitors, we'll actually also pull in any publicly available data from them. So while for you, we yeah. might get data like impressions, which we can't mm -hmm. get for your competitors' Facebook posts, we will show you how much social engagement it got. So you can actually compare yourself and start to benchmark and also mm -hmm. use them as a way to learn. Like, what are they doing that's working so well? Uh -huh. Interesting. So is it, is it based on an artificial intelligence system or are you developing it right now or... So there are there are some like AI type things that we do mm -hmm. um, in terms of you know recommendations, but primarily it's focused more around pure play analytics, like seeing and going in. Okay, well, like what's working really well here? What's working really well there mm -hmm. within this topic of content? You know, what's resonating there with an audience? And so it's not all the way to like, hey, we're we doing this crazy AI. Although we are doing more mm -hmm. stuff like that, it's more mm -hmm. of just making the data easily mungible. If that makes sense. I don't know if that's a sense. word. Yeah, mungible. 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 Munchable yeah. sounds cool, at least. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> reminds, we'll take it. Reminds me of the chocolate cake again. Exactly. Very German. <laughs> no, super cool. I think uh, that's a in very interesting business model. Um, maybe just to, to give an insight here, what do you think, if you just have an overview of all your, the analytics you, you save, what are platforms that currently work very well for, for your companies especially, and what do you think is going to be the next, next trend based on the data that you, um, that you collected? I mean, the thing we're seeing right now across across our data set is a couple things. One is obviously video is still working really well. 
Okay. Two is LinkedIn is ascendant. So you're seeing LinkedIn is just doing better and better. And for B2B companies, it's better than Twitter by far now. And so I think that's a really interesting trend to keep watching. I mean, Instagram keeps doing amazing. I mean, it's going to be interesting. Instagram has started rolling out more features around um, you know promoted posts in the feed. So it'll be interesting to see if they start crashing back organic engagement for brands. I think that's a big thing to watch out for. Um, and then generally, I think Facebook is getting much harder. But there's still brands that do amazing on Facebook. And so I think if you're struggling with Facebook, you have to really take a look and see who in your space is really kicking in and doing a really good job. And I think one trend we're starting to see a lot more is very person-driven marketing. So mm -hmm. instead of being brand-driven, they take a person or a personality like the CEO or mm -hmm. um, maybe just an executive, and they're just using that a lot more since so many of these social networks and these social channels are really focused around authenticity. It's mm -hmm. very hard sometimes as a brand to be an authentic voice. But right. if you take someone and make them sort of like a spokesperson for the company, that's a way of getting around that problem. What do you think about, like a lot of people that I talk to also in the, in the German market, they also think about using a digital influencer program to really establish personal brands within a company. But they always say, okay, there's a problem that it feels like people are very dependent on a single person or a company is very dependent on a single person. What do you think about that problem? So I think there's a bunch of things. I think one is, you know, within a company, obviously there's contractual stuff, right? So, you know, you can, you know, make sure that people are agreeing to work there for a certain amount of time. If you're going to invest in their personal brand. So there's mm -hmm. ways that you can handle that. Um, yeah, I know, for example, there's one large retail brand in the U.S., which basically every month has a different employee sort of be the voice of the social channel so that right. there's not okay, like cool. one person, mm -hmm. but you still have that very authentic voice. So I think that's um, one way to do it. And similarly, I think the other thing you can do is just distribute it more broadly. So have more people um, who are doing that for the brand. So you're not overly focused or overly risked on one individual person. Right. Okay. So you just distribute the, the, the content through different channels and through different people. Interesting. You got it. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people doing it in the States. I mean, you do it via LinkedIn. I think that's also how I actually, um, got in touch with you because I think your oh, cool. activity on, on LinkedIn is super interesting. I mean, you do like one minute videos with, uh, the Evernote yeah. CEO and different guys from, from the scene. So it's uh, Gary. I mean, Gary, you probably know Gary does the same kind of thing. Of course. He's super big in Germany right now at the moment. And everybody kind yeah, of. Gary's big everywhere. He's big in China right now too. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Do you actually know him personally, or is there a relationship? No, I, I don't. I I do not at all. I would love to, but he's way too famous for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 coming up. I think you're one of the one of the people that are gonna gonna come up the system pretty soon. I'm I'm pretty sure about that. Um, that's super. I mean, thank you for for giving a little insight there. I mean, how companies do it. What do you like? Do you have like an example case maybe of a company that you think is relevant and that is interesting for people and you can share of using data with your platform and turning it into a good marketing strategy? Is there like a cool story that you can tell? Oh my God, there's so many. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think one of the things one of the things you see is interesting is um, it's hard to speak about specific brands, but we've seen with a lot of retail brands mm -hmm. sort of really getting around their heads around this idea that the most effective marketing for top of funnel marketing for a lot of retail brands is lifestyle content. It's not product content. Your okay. people want to feel affinity with the lifestyle of your brand. They don't necessarily mm. want to feel affinity for every individual product. And that's a way to get your feed to be very boring. And so we see that a lot of very effective brands focus on, okay, how do we show that we share lifestyle values with you, the consumer? Mm -hmm. Interesting, and then going, going, using the the lifestyle to market the brands, uh, to market the products. Exactly. Of course. Okay. Exactly. That's interesting. 
Okay, cool. And so what's your, is your focus, the whole retail system, or is that something that just happened by, by time? Yeah, we have a, we were mostly focused on consumer. So we have a lot of retail, but also media and entertainment and a whole lot of stuff in there. Um, so there's, there's some random stuff too, but it's a good amount of retail, but also a good amount of like media, like NBA is a customer of ours. We have a lot of sports teams, which I think is mm. kind of funny. I, saw, I don't know I saw, any sports. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason if you know too much. There you go. Know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, a little naivete. Right, right. I saw you. You're working a lot with uh, with uh, American football brands, right? Yeah, um, American basketball brands. Less football. A lot of basketball and hockey for some reason. Okay. Do you need to watch yeah. the, the NBA finals now because of that? Or I do. I do. Or at least I need to like pretend I did. <laughs> Who are you for? <laughs> I have no idea. Who's even playing? Golden State Warriors. <laughs> yeah, Golden State Warriors. Germans again, love so. basketball, right? We do. We actually um, the, the the trend that we watch uh, American stuff is quite uh, quite funny. We watch like a lot of people watch the the um, the Super Bowl, and people are very into American sports. It's kind of funny. Since we have actually isn't there a German football league too? You mean the American football or soccer? American football, not soccer. Yeah, yeah. We have, we have a we have an American football league, but it's not very relevant at the moment. I hope <laughs> <laughs> we're starting Sorry, to get just, there. There's now an, a a professional American rugby league, so. Which uh, didn't also come from the state from the states, right? <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> from what, Australia, or England, one of those. Yeah, right. It's true. I mean, it's uh, it's cool that you somehow diversify your your approach to the different brands, right? I mean, sports is a complete different game than uh, classic retail business. Um, yeah, and that's one of the fun that's one of the fun things about the job, right? Is like just inherently when you're a data company, you get to touch a lot of different things, and so mm-hmm. that's definitely like a really good part of it. Right, right. Since we just talked about LinkedIn, I think one thing before we maybe also talk a little bit about your book, which I find um, interesting as well, is the whole thing with you and LinkedIn. It feels like there's somehow like a little relationship when you do those one uh, one minute videos with the cool, cool guys <laughs> from the from the marketing team, but also above that. And um, maybe like how how did your approach happen with LinkedIn and how are you using it? And what do you think is quite relevant at the moment for LinkedIn? Do you think it's a big chance for for people? Yeah, so we noticed last spring, to two mm. springs ago, I guess, so 2017, that we started seeing in Track Maven that LinkedIn was trying to outperform Twitter for a lot of our clients in the mm-hmm. B2B side. And so I started doing some experiments and I did like this like sort of mediocre stuff and I was getting crazy engagement. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And so I'm a big believer in obviously the power of timing. That's a big part of what the book is about, which you know we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, this is clearly an opportunity. And like, I was like, well, what can I do here that'd be interesting? There was this video beta going on in mm-hmm. at LinkedIn. And so I got myself in the video beta. And then I was like, well, what are things I like doing? Well, I like talking. I like meeting new people. And I'm constantly meeting new people. So I was like, well, why don't I do sort of short form video interviews mm-hmm. um, with people? Just because like that seemed like a reasonable thing to do. Like seemed like something that I wouldn't have to go out of my way. Like I'm already meeting with a lot of people just during my day and during my week. And so that's what I did. And um you know, the videos just started blowing up from day one. I think it was right time, right place. I think if you're trying to do the same thing now, it'd be harder. Um, but I think, I think, you know, anytime there's a big platform shift. So LinkedIn last year basically redesigned their platform to be more content focused and they launched a video in the summer. So anytime you see a shift like that, there's typically a big opportunity for mm-hmm. new voices to be heard. And so that's, so I still think that's true, but I think it's getting mm-hmm. harder by the day on LinkedIn. I think the key thing on LinkedIn is you have to do something different. 
So I think there's a lot of people who are now doing things like I do, like video interviews. And I'm not just saying this because, you know, hashtag competition, but I'm saying this because I really (laughs) think that, you know, you have to be think about what is that, you know, I talk in the book about the best ideas from a creative perspective are ideas that are familiar, but novel. Mm -hmm. They can't be too new and they can't be too familiar. So like, like the thing I always tell people is like, you should be doing like, you know, I don't know if they have MTV Cribs in Germany, but you should be doing like office cribs where like you go and visit. So MTV Cribs is a show where you visit celebrities' houses and okay, they give cool. you a tour. It's kind of funny. You should <laughs> do it for offices, like startup offices. Like do a LinkedIn show where you're like going and visiting startup offices and like getting a tour and talking to the mm-hmm. CEO and all this stuff. Like that would be really cool. So really using LinkedIn as a like, kind of like a new YouTube, you think? Yeah, it's like a B2B YouTube. And but too many people are doing really straightforward stuff. I think now there's already evolved enough that you have to do some things that are a little more sort of novel and interesting. So I think there's a big opportunity. You just have to be sure to add your own little novel twist. Right, right. And if, but a lot of for a lot of people, it's about the personal thing, right? To to get themselves into the mood of publishing videos on the internet, and they don't feel really comfortable. I think I think that's different. Maybe in in the American market, what I've experienced living there also for a year than in the German market. But I think. Um, Yeah, it's just like some people are just not yeah, self-confident enough to, to publish videos on, on, on LinkedIn. But I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I think you just got to do it, right? I right, think it's one of those right. things that there's never going to be a perfect moment. And I think like all things, like, you know, the biggest advice if you ever want to become a better public speaker is just to do more public speaking, right? Because right. these are things that our body sympathetic nervous system gets us mm-hmm. very anxious about because mm-hmm. uh, we feel vulnerable. But our body sympathetic nervous system is also pretty adaptable. And so it starts to like over time just like calm down and like these things become much less reactive. So I remember like the first time I did public speaking, I was like terrified and now (laughs) I probably speak 50, 60 times a year. And I'm like, it's like, whatever it literally causes no stress at all. Um, and that's just something that happens with exposure. Um, and you can't, you can't get around that, right? You have to go through that experience of being scary as shit. Right. Right. Cool. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a probably a good good quote also um, for for people. Uh, <laughs> we could use that as a little quote on the on the wall. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and connected to the chocolate cake, of course. Don't forget uh-huh, that. Uh huh. Uh huh. It really gets dark fast, like the chocolate cake. <laughs> no, but cool. Let's start. Let's talk. Let's uh, start talking a little bit about your book, which is a lot about creativity, and that's also a topic that I wanted to cover, anyways. Um, so yeah, there it is. <laughs> For the podcast listeners, they can't see it, but um, <laughs> cool. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about it. Um, what's your book about? How did it happen? Um, yeah, maybe give a little head. So it's, up it's titled "The Creative Curve: How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time." And The whole idea of the book is that we have this notion in Western culture that creativity is this like mystical, magical thing that some of us have and some of us don't. And I'd always been someone who read a lot about creativity and autobiographies and memoirs and all stuff. And mm-hmm. I, my impression of creativity has always been that creativity is a learnable skill. And over the last sort of five years, as I've engaged with people, I've realized that most people don't believe this. Most people believe that creativity is something that sort of you're you know, given by God or you don't have. And <laughs> The reality is we actually have a ton of science around how creativity works, why it works. And the science is really clear. Creativity is something you can get better at. And so mm-hmm. for the book, it's broken up into two halves. Mm-hmm. So for the first half, I interviewed all of the leading academics who study creativity in psychology, neuroscience, anthropology, sociology, psychology. And I basically debunk this sort of inspiration myth of creativity, right? Mm-hmm. How does creativity really work? That's the first half. The second half, I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. These are like people like Pasek and Paul, who's a songwriting duo behind The Greatest Showman in La La Land. 
Um, I interviewed uh, Alexis O'Handy, the founder of Reddit. I interviewed um, Nina Jacobson, the former president of Walt Disney Motion Pictures, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix. And I interviewed these people to figure out, okay, these people have achieved all these creative heights. What did they do to do this? And so I outlined four things I found that they all did. I explained what they did, how they did it, and the science behind why these things actually enhance your creativity. And so it's meant to both be a sort of a myth-busting book, but also a very actionable book on things you can actually do. So that's the reason why you divide it into like two parts to first give a little science behind it and then do the action plan more or less. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like two books in one, but it's still very short. It's 220 pages. You can read it on an airplane ride. That's cool. I mean, um, to, to maybe give a little insight here, like, what did you learn from all the different people? I mean, Disney, Reddit, and the different people that you mentioned, they have a very creative uh, background, of course, and they're still in the creative mood to do things that other people seem they can't. But of course, there's a possibility, as you explained. What makes the people different, maybe, from their creative thinking than other people? What's, uh, what's something that you notice? So it's, it's mostly about how they prepare. This is the really crucial thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times in our culture, we get confused. We, we have this idea of like natural born talent. The reality is that natural born talent doesn't really exist. What it is is that a lot of people start very young. And the hard part, they were pushed through by their parents and they were like four years old. Like Mozart, we think of him as this child prodigy. The truth is he wrote his first piece of original music when he was like 17. Um, his dad, starting age three, forced him to play music three hours a day with literally the best music teachers in all of Europe. And so, yeah, after 14 years of practicing three hours a day, seven days a week with this like intense helicopter dad, like you'd be able to write a half century <laughs> tale too. And so we mistake oftentimes sort of starting young with being a natural talent. And as adults, when we start new things, um, it's hard. Right. Because we don't have someone forcing us to do it. We're very conscious and self-aware. and We have lots of other things going on. And so it's easy to just stop. And so I think the biggest thing that's interesting about these creatives is that they all have this mindset that they could get better at things and that even if it's hard, they're going to push through. They're going to persevere. So I think, one, there's a mindset thing. I think that's really important. Interesting. Yeah. Two, you know, I think and there's a lot more in the book, but here's some just easy ones um, Two, you know, I think. We think of creatives very much as doers, right? We talk mm -hmm. about them as people who are very active. And mm -hmm. we even have these memes in social media. Like you've probably seen it like 90% of people consume, 9% of people engage, 1% right. create, right. hashtag hustle. And it's like, oh, shoot <laughs> me. It's so stupid. It's also wrong because one of the things I found that I was really fascinated by was the best creatives are also some of the biggest consumers. They consume huge amounts of content but in their very narrow vertical. They're That's highly, okay. highly, highly specialized. I think mm -hmm. this idea that creatives know a lot about a lot is definitely not true. The people who are actually successful at creativity know a lot about a little. They go very, very deep mm -hmm. on a very specific field. So those are two things I think are important. There's a mindset element, and then there's just getting comfortable with the idea that these great um, creatives are some of the biggest consumers. And the reason why the consumption thing is really important mm -hmm. is that It turns out that we have these two urges that are evolutionary. One is the urge to find things that are familiar because it brings us safety. And the other is the urge to find things that are novel because it's potential reward. Mm -hmm. These two things are in contradiction to each other, but it's our brain's way of balancing risk and reward. And so it turns out that when scientists have looked at human preference, we tend to like ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel. So think about like, The first Star Wars was like a Western in space, right? It's familiar, but it's novel. Mm -hmm. And so these are the ideas that tend to take hold in our culture. And so 
if familiarity is an important part of creativity, which it is, right. then consumption helps you understand, well, what is familiar? Mm -hmm. Maybe to, to, um, to go a little deeper here, consumption and going very deep in one certain topic and not so going horizontal and not vertical or something that lots of people um, don't have in mind, I suppose. Maybe you can give a little example how, if you are creative or you want to be a creative, how... What do you mean by going very deep in a very little space? Is that a certain topic? Is that a certain person? Maybe follow Ellen on a daily basis, or is uh, what 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 does it mean? Like how how do you mean that? Yeah, I think I mean I think it depends on the niche, right? But you know, think about um, you know Nita Jacobson, who's president of Walt Disney Motion Pictures. She's the mm -hmm. producer behind The Hunger Games, Crazy Rich Asians, um, People vs O.J. Simpson. And, you know, she started her career in Hollywood literally as a professional script reader. Her job was just to read scripts all day and give feedback and notes to higher level executives. Um, Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer at Netflix, started his career as an 18-year-old community college student who got a job as a clerk at a video rental store. Those mm -hmm. used to exist. And um, he decided that he, instead of doing his homework during the day, would watch every single movie in the store. So it's within this Crazy. sort of clear mm -hmm. you know, format of going very, very, very deep. You see this with musicians, for example. A lot of musicians either played in cover bands or they you know, spent their childhood listening to one very specific genre of music, mm -hmm. right? So we actually overemphasize this idea of being a horizontal thinker. The right. best creatives are actually somewhat poorly adjusted. They tend to go very, very, very narrow, mm -hmm. um, which I think people don't like. They don't like mm -hmm. that idea, but it is true. Right, interesting. I, what do you think, like, for example, if people want to market their their company we have a lot of family businesses in germany for example maybe just to give a insight here if they want to market something and they want to use creativity do you think they should really look at um at different companies and how they market themselves or how they successfully market themselves on the internet and maybe deep dive on one platform let's say youtube and then watch a thousand videos and see what people do what companies do and then use it for for with the creativity for their so yeah to give you an example i interviewed uh, a couple viral youtube um stars and they all told stories about how like they started first as a consumer not mm -hmm. as actually a creator so again it comes down to the format so if you're a family-owned business and you want to get into doing youtube videos as marketing yeah you'd go very narrow on that or yeah. but if it also said you wanted to become the best manufacturer of plastics mm -hmm. that has ever existed you probably want to read lots of trade and niche publications about plastics by the way i don't know if you can hear that in my office there's a bunch of people clapping because We just got a new iced coffee machine, and this is this is a big day here. So um, anyway, the things that happen track me. Now we could do the, the startup tour, couldn't we? Exactly, exactly. Now we have things to show off. Um, so, but I think that's a really important thing. That's a really just it's a really critical thing to realize is that it just depends on what you're trying to do. So I think you can be much more intentional with the creativity that you're trying to develop, and you can be really thoughtful about what you want to achieve. Cool. Super. I, I, I love that. I love that approach to really go very horizontal because I think people focus way too much on using and consuming all platforms and they somehow forget to use the consumption as like an action for their, for their own business or for their own thing. Oh, and I think it's one of those things where it's crazy where people, you know, people think, um, I think people have a lot of misnomers around creativity and Mm -hmm. You know, if the misnomers were true, much more of us would be creative, right? And so it's it's not true that you should be a very horizontal thinker. Like otherwise, so many people would be creative. There's lots of people on Twitter reading lots of stuff about lots of things, but clearly that's not working. 
Right, right. I, it reminds me a little of, I had an interview with uh, the chief creative officer of VaynerMedia also, Steve Babcock, and he also talked about the the movement of how he actually just learned creativity by being as an intern in different media companies and really seeing different patterns and then going to Vayner and now like using the whole experience from his past experience with the creativity in mind, um, which then influences, of course, the company Vayner Media as, as a whole, um, as a creative officer. Um, so I, I see parallels here. <laughs> You're a big Gary Vaynerchuk fan, aren't you? No, I'm, yeah, of course I am, but, um, <laughs> everything is great. How can you not love him? Right. I think, I think his way of like using, um, using his personal brand to market this whole company is very interesting. And, uh, there are a lot of German companies also in, I think also in Europe who can learn a lot about the, about the system that he uses. I mean, it's not, it's very systemized. It's not something that, of course, there's a lot of authenticity, but it's also very systemized to use his personal brand to, to uh, get offers for, for Vayner. I think it's very systematic. Yeah, things gone from zero to 700 employees, right? It's crazy. Right, right. And you're on the way as well. So I think, um, your book is probably gonna. <laughs> One day. Yeah, we have the interview to look back, so it's quite cool. Um, so the book itself, I mean, also what, what I always find interesting about people doing books or writing books is the passion behind it. What was your like purpose of using the book and sharing your information to hundreds and thousands of people? What was your intent behind it? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally for me, I sort of view my purpose in life as helping people achieve their potential. Like as a CEO, as someone who builds products for other people, like how do I help people sort of hit that next rung? Right. And so I just got really frustrated with how often I was hearing this, you know, BS about, oh, I'm not creative, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And for me, a book seemed like a really good medium to do that of like, no, no, here is like a definitive, linear, self-contained argument that will teach you that you are wrong and here's how to get better at it. And right. so... The book was really an extension of sort of what I view my purpose as and why that's my purpose. I don't really know. I mean, I know I'm not super motivated by money. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's um, terribly scared of debt. So probably there's some <laughs> Freudian motivation to have a positive impact. Right. That's uh, which is which is a good one. I mean, yeah, the, the funny thing about you, I guess, is that you're insanely young, which is on the one hand is like super interesting to see what you have done but it's also very cool to see a young person which is in close to my age i'm 21 you're 27 but a lot of people in my follower base are also in the 27 28 range so it's super interesting for them of course to see somebody like you approaching a topic writing a book doing a company um, and doing different stuff and um, still managing it one thing that also interests me here is that how do you how do you plan creativity you've talked a lot about preparation for creativity how do you do it do you have a certain time in the morning or do you drink a coffee while being creative or is it just popping up or? So I talk in the book about how our brain processes information and we have these two different ways that we process information. So mm -hmm. our right brain is where we do our creative thinking, our divergent thinking. This is where we do, we connect more like metaphorical things together. We connect distant concepts. Our left brain is where we do our logical thinking. So right. very step-by-step. Um, when you're doing a math problem or when you're like defining a word, that's all happening in your left brain. Mm. Now, what's interesting is that your left brain does all of this very consciously. Like if you're solving a math problem, it's like, okay, one plus one equals two, um, you know, long division. Like it's very conscious. Your right brain is much sort of almost quieter. It does this processing subconsciously. And only once it gets an answer does it actually come and say, 
hey, I got something. And that's mm-hmm. that aha moment that we experience. And so one of the things that's really important is that you want to have more inspiration. A, you have to have knowledge. You have to have things for your right hemisphere to actually connect. Like you have to have dots to connect the dots. That's really mm-hmm. important. Again, another benefit of consumption. Right. The other thing is you have to have moments where your left hemisphere is sort of shut off. Mm-hmm. This is why we have aha moments in the shower, on our commute, on a run. It's not that like the shower is particularly inspiring, hopefully. Right. It's that the fact <laughs> is that those times your left hemisphere is kind of shut up. So you can actually hear the ideas that are quietly percolating in your right hemisphere mm-hmm. and are coming to the forefront. And so you experience those then as those aha moments. So you need to, one, consume information about what you want to have inspiration around. Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, once I started reading all this creativity research, when I was in a run, I would have ideas about these wonky creativity concepts. Right. If I hadn't ingested that, I wouldn't have had those, right? So that's one. The second one is that you have to have moments to actually experience those, right? You have to have moments where your left hemisphere is sort of shut up, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to carve out that time to actually be able to think. Right. Okay. Super cool. I mean, that's a that's a good a good approach for people, I think, who want to kind of get get a little more creative on on their side. Since you talked a lot about consumption, we have a little like brain feeder, which is the Q and A kind of session um, at the end um, at the end of the podcast. Um, how do you what do you consume? And maybe if you look back at all your consumption, which is probably why you have connected the dots so well. What's your what's the number one go to thing go to consumption tool that you use? Is it a podcast that you like? Is it a certain book that you read, or what is it? It's mostly it's mostly sort of um, I wouldn't call them interviews, but like mm-hmm. I tended to spend a lot of my time meeting with people who have relevant experiences mm-hmm. and in, in sort of business and like ask them lots of questions. And I don't mean sort of generic advice questions, but for like specific examples, because it turns out that, you know, hearing other people's examples of scenarios works much in your brain, like having experience yourself. It allows you to build that pattern match- matching mm-hmm. pattern recognition. So I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, just like, meet more experienced people and ask them lots of questions and ask them specific questions. If they say, here's some generic advice, say, well, can you give me an example of that? Right? Because what you want to do is you want to build those, those dots. So when Mm -hmm. you can actually do the pattern recognition yourself when you're not in that format. Right. Okay. So really go into more detail with people that uh, are into certain topics. You got it. Nevertheless, is there a book that you would recommend because you said you read lots of books? Oh my God. Um, I love Ben Harwitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. That's right. a great book. I mean, um, everyone who starts a company should read it. It's probably one of the most, um, it's probably one of the, the best books in terms of telling the truth of what it's like to run a startup, just the emotional turmoil. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry, it's allergy season. Bless you. <laughs> or is it the ice crusher? Ice crusher coming up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Cool. I mean, a uh, hard thing about hard things also was covered a couple of more times here in the podcast. So that's nice. How do you, is how it? do you, yeah, he's a, he, Horowitz is a good, crazy guy, I guess. Um, they also just made a big funding, I think, a couple of days ago. But um, um, planning of your calendar, how do you, how do you plan your calendar? Is it Gmail or Mac or how do you use it? How do you do it? Yeah, I use, I use Google Calendar and then I use my email inbox as, as a to do list. And I use inbox by Gmail to, so I can add to do items and snooze emails and use it as sort of more intelligent. So you use emails as a to do or? Mm-hmm. Okay. How do you, do you have certain folders then in your email list or how do you keep it all together? It's all time based. So I'll, I'll snooze emails to come back to when I actually need to do them. So it's all very time based because my job as a CEO is very much a more of a router. So I'm not doing lots of big tasks. It's lots and lots of little and medium tasks. So it's right. mostly about what am I getting done when. 
Right, cool. And you also have Brian who does a little bit of support for you on the marketing side in regards to like calendar timings and stuff, right? Yeah, I have a I have a marketing assistant who's helping me with all the book stuff, who's Brian, who's wonderful, because otherwise I would go crazy. Hi, Brian. Yeah, I was in touch with him a couple of times, so that's uh, that's uh, cool here. Hey, Brian. So, hi. <laughs> uh, generally, do you have any routines in your daily habits or... Um, these days, all my routines are gone because I'm like in book mode. So, um, but traditionally, you know, my routines are spend some time in the morning just to sort of take a breath, whether that's eating breakfast or walking to work or just sort of having some sort of solo time. And then, um, I work out three or four days a week pretty intensely. I find that's a very important part of sort of stress relief. Mm -hmm. Um, those are probably my big things. Otherwise, I mean, I think the things when you're entrepreneurs, you need to take good care of your physical health. Because so much of your job is so taxing mentally that if your body's not cooperating, it can really quickly all sort of break down. And so from a routine perspective, those are some of the most important things. Cool. Nice. I think the last point that I want to cover, which I find is super interesting. Once again, I already said it, that you're a young guy, you're 27 years old, you sold one company, you have a new company now with 50 employees, and you're still on the way to actually on, uh, to getting to be getting bigger and bigger bigger. If there's something that you would recommend to you sitting in the college um, in the college dorm, um, just reading things and developing your company, what would that be? I think the biggest thing is take other people's advice more seriously. I mean, I definitely got advice or would read advice, but I would either mm -hmm. think, oh, this is cliche, like, right. oh, it's all about people, right? Like, that's cliche. Well, no, it's actually really when you're running a business, you realize it's all about people. Like, you very quickly realize that. Right. Um, and so I think just like, being open to advice from other people, even if you think, hey, I know all this stuff, I was definitely a know-it-all. Um, I found that most of the advice people gave me, um, that people who were experienced, turned out to be true, even if I didn't listen to it. And so right. I probably, going back, would have listened a little better. Cool. Nice. That's a good last word. Thanks a lot. I can uh, just explain or just recommend everybody to buy your book. I think it's a, it's a great source for being more creative in any kind of business or in any kind of personal development. Uh, there it was again. And um, <laughs> thanks a lot, Alan, for, for the time, for, for the fun, for the, for the chocolate cake talks, for, for everything, <laughs> for everything uh, that thanks, you have Dan, done. Always welcome in Germany. Let me know when you're here and uh, we, can, we can make it happen. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And if any of you are interested, be sure to check out the book website, thecreativecurve.com. Bye, guys. Yes, thanks, man.